Hello and welcome to another Quarren stream. I am, of course, am Joe Magician, and today we'll be talking about that that song, that one song from season eight that made everyone go wild. When Podrick Payne crooned out Jenny's song, or Jenny of Old Stones as it's called in season eight, many an ass waffler shed tears and cheered for the song making its way onto the screen. The sad song of Jenny of Old Stones, who lost so much and danced among her ghosts. Alexa, play Jenny of Old Stones by Florence and the Machine. You're welcome to those of you who listen to this on speakers and on your TVs. Hopefully you got the right song, although I heard from people it didn't get the right one. Um, <laughs> something by the Everly Brothers. The story of Duncan, Prince of Dragonflies, and Jenny of Oldstones is an immensely popular and beloved story among those in Westeros, bordering on almost fairy tale. The crown prince who met a common woman he fell in love with and gave up the crown for that love. Oh, a very sweet story. Um... Unlike a fairy tale, though, there were serious consequences for their romance, including rebellions, unhappy marriages, and a legacy written fire and blood. Those choices, made in good faith and out of love and caring for each other, resonate all the way to the current timeline of A Song of Ice and Fire, and their story influences young lovers still, decades after their death. Before we really get going, um, do the plugs and stuff like that, so make sure you like, share, subscribe. Um, leave a comment if you're watching this back. All those things really help with the YouTube algorithm, which is highly dependent on people interacting with the thing that you're watching. If you want to support me, you can also support me on Patreon. Here on YouTube, you can lead Super Chats or the Super Stickers, I guess they're called. Uh, and also on PayPal, I actually have two already that came before the stream started. Um, let me drop the link for that. Hang on a second. Uh, one from Danny McKay. Uh, who said, Duncan, Jenny, I can dig it. Thanks so much, um, Danny. And one from uh, Ramona uh, Zamfir, who you may remember last week's episode on uh, Peter Baelish and House Baelish itself was her choice from being a Seneschal level patron. Oh, a super <laughs> a hot dog from San Rictian. Thank you for the sticker of a sandwich, Mallory. Yeah, and you can also find me on my podcast feed, uh, Wit and Wisdom of Joe Magician, iTunes, all the places if you want to listen to the audio-only version of these things. And I wanted to say thank you to the newest patrons of uh, this month. So that is uh, Ramona, who I already mentioned, Sheena F. I'm not sure how to pronounce this one, but they just showed up in the patron Slack. Nyad? Not, not sure about that one. And then Amy Blackfire. So thanks you guys so much for uh, signing up. Let's go right into Danny and... Not Danny. Not Danny. <laughs> Let's go right into, I just combined them, Duncan and Jenny into Danny. You're damn right, I just called a hot dog a sandwich. <laughs> Let's go into Duncan and Jenny. And in a call back to last week's stream about House Baelish, I wanted to bring up a quote about how Peter saw his future with Kat and how the story of Duncan and Jenny is used by George throughout his story. Old Stones, all the, old stones, all the small folk called it when I was a girl, but no doubt it had some other name and was still a Hall of Kings. She camped here once with her father, on their way to Seaguard. Peter was with us, too. There's a song, he remembered. Jenny of Oldstones, with the flowers in her hair. We're all just songs in the end, if we are lucky. And this is one of the more famous folk uh, stories within A Song of Ice and Fire. Something that every young kid probably has on their mind when they're dreaming of marrying princes or princesses. Or just sort of wanting to have more out of their life than their birth will give them. And it starts with Duncan, Prince of Dragonflies, and Jenny of Old Stones. Duncan is known as Duncan the Small initially. He is the firstborn child to our main man, Aegon V, 
Egg from Dunkin' Egg. He was named, obviously, for Egg's best friend and companion fumer, future Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Duncan the Tall. Obviously, the nickname Duncan the Small was a play on the name Duncan the Tall, but you can kind of imagine that little Duncan, as he was growing up, hearing about the stories about Duncan Egg, where, their fa- where his father went, where his namesake went, who they stood up to, their interactions with everybody, probably took that a little pretty much to heart, the lessons of their life, much in the same way that we as readers enjoy reading about Duncan Egg. You can imagine his oldest son did too. And from that, you can probably imagine there is more of a willingness among, with Duncan the Small to interact with commoners than you normally see from House Targaryen. In particular, that Duncan is a commoner and that Egg spent most of his life growing up among them. A hint of this, of Duncan giving a, well, Duncan the Tall giving, I'll call him Dunk from now on just to make it less confusing. Uh, Dunk giving a uh, reality check to Egg when they're talking about bastardy. And here's the quote from Duncan Egg. Born of betrayal, Dunk thought. Born of lust and weakness. Never to be trusted, great or small. Egg, he said. Didn't you ever think that I might be a bastard? <gasps> you, sir. The boy took, that took the boy back. You are not. And that's sort of a, a, a running theme for Egg's journey through the through the Riverlands and the other parts of Westeros, the common folk, seeing a very different life than he would have had at court. And you can imagine, again, that this, these life lessons from both of these men probably carried on to Duncan the Small. And there's also the, I mean, the stories of Dunk riding against, well, he planned to ride against Valar Targaryen when he shouldn't have, his trial by seven against Arian, the Osgrey and Weber fight that Doug, Dunk ended up within, Probably the story of the village hero, which we haven't gotten, but maybe will in the future. And in particular, the idea that part of Arian's problem is that he grew up so privileged and he grew up so uh, among courtly people all the time that it kind of warped his perception of reality. So again, you can imagine that these le- these lessons transferred to Duncan the Small when we know what happened to him in the future. And also we know that uh, Egg was married to... Betha Blackwood, known as Black Betha for her raven black hair. We haven't really met Betha in the story yet. We haven't gotten to that part of Egg's timeline. Last I checked, he was... At the end of the mystery night, he's like 12 or 13, I think. Uh, we are told that this love, w- that this marriage was not obligation, that nobody forced him to do it, that Egg married her out of general, genuine affection. We hear from the histories that Black Betha was known for being willful and stubborn, yeah, this probably carried over to her kids' attitudes when they were told who they should marry. And you can imagine that Betha was a very powerful person in Duncan the Small's life, who imbued in him probably these same kind of ideas of standing up for yourself, doing what you want instead of doing what you're supposed to, marrying for love. It's There's a lot of examples here for Duncan the Small to not just go along with the plans handed to him for his life. And also, this is an important point that this is one of the few times where a follower of the old gods married into the Targaryen dynasty. Obviously, Black Betha was from House Blackwood, who are famous for being followers of the old gods, also Blood Raven. But it wasn't considered a scandal at the time. Um, they were married when they were 19 and 18, and Egg at this point was incredibly far from the throne. Nobody thought he would ever end up King Aegon V. Most people assumed he would live out his life as a slightly odd prince who enjoyed hanging out with the small folk. So. You know, it didn't really matter, but it probably did matter quite a lot when she became Queen of the Seven Kingdoms and it was revealed that, oh, wait a second, the Queen of the Seven Kingdoms follows the old gods, not the faith of the seven. That could, that 
could be a real problem for the High Lords of Westeros, and in particular, those that follow the Faith of the Seven. And in particular, how that religion could influence her children, would they even follow the Faith? Would they? Because Egg doesn't really seem to be that into the Faith of the Seven himself in his young age. But Betha very, my, very well may have been a devout follower of the Old Gods, especially with <laughs> related to Bloodraven, who's like a walking avatar of them. And that brings us to another point. Bloodraven is alive and well during this time and at court. Um, Betha is related to Bloodraven somehow. We're not really sure. Maybe like a second or third cousin at this point. It appears that he's probably much older than her. But again, this is like the, the growing idea that the old gods and through Bloodraven and also here through Black, Be uh, Black Betha are ending up influencing the Iron Throne much more than they ever were able to in the past. Securing a marriage to a prince of the Iron Throne. Bloodraven essentially running the kingdom, so Egg gets closer and closer to the throne. You can surely imagine that this was going on. Oh, I didn't know that Streamlabs could do that. Apparently I just got a new patron. Hang on a second. Did that just show up on the screen? Yeah, I think it did with a little zombie running. Oh, from oh, Jaded Redhead uh, just pledged. I think that's at the Grandmaster level? Yeah, that sounded like Pokemon. Thanks so much, Jaded Redhead. <laughs> Again, the, the, you can probably imagine that as he got closer and closer to power, the influence of Bloodraven and Black Betha and the Blackwoods in general probably made quite a lot of people, particularly in the Riverlands, unhappy that, that this marriage took place between Egg and Black Betha. It's very likely that we're going to meet Black Betha in the future Duncan Egg story, The Village Hero. Uh, it's speculated that this will take place at Pennytree, which is where Arlen of Pennytree, Dunk's former knight, I mean, the guy he squired for before, uh, was from and it's a land that sits between the Brackens and the Blackwoods and it's a major part of their blood feud that it's one of these towns they fight over back and forth. So this makes perfect sense for the exact time frame, especially with Egg being 18 when he marries Betha, that they meet during that story if we ever get that. And also Black Betha intrudes in the story a little bit. Davos's ship, Black Betha, is probably named for her. So this is probably a ship that was built during the time of Aegon for his wife. Much like we see that Robert beat, uh, built the beat. Well, yeah, that's probably a slip of the tongue that's correct, but he built Sweet Cersei for Cersei Lannister. Do you think that Bloodraven introduced them or it's totally unrelated? This is one of those things we're going to get to later, but it's, it's really hard to tell exactly how much Bloodraven had a hand in Egg meeting Betha. Um, we don't have the story yet, but it's possible that it's maybe on Bloodraven's suggestion that he goes to Penetry, that Dunk goes there or he has some hand in it. We really don't know yet. It, it would just be speculation one way or the other. Although we do see, yeah, as the Guilty Undertaker says, we do see Pennytree in the main storyline. That is where Jamie goes, and that's where he meets up with Brienne. He kind of doesn't think about it too often, but George is still thinking about Pennytree. Village Hero is still coming, so we'll probably hear a lot more about it. As a side effect of this, Egg betrothed his children at very, very young ages to powerful lords. Um, you can probably think this was from Bloodraven's suggestion, but this also seems like me playing CK2, where you betroth your children out as soon as you can to powerful lords in order to secure uh, alliances, and that's what it seems like he was doing. The most prominent of which was Duncan the Small was promised to a daughter of Lord Lionel Baratheon, the Laughing Storm. Uh, we learn about so many other marriages. Jaehaerys, who went on to become Jaehaerys I, was promised to Celia Tully, a character I don't think we hear about again. Daron, the third son of Aegon, obviously named for Daron the Dreamer, was supposed to marry Olena Redwine. That Olena. <laughs> That's 
Daron, son of Aegon, is the weird Targaryen that Olena did not want to marry. And then we also hear that his first daughter, Shera, Shera, probably name kind of, it sounds like Shiera, so I'm guessing that's where it came from, was supposed to marry Luther Tyrell. This shows kind of where Egg's attention was at this time with his children. He really wanted to secure three regions. He wanted to secure the Stormlands, the Reach, and the Riverlands. And that's not really that surprising. That's where most of the support of the Blackfires came from, especially the Reach. And you can see here, there are two marriages arranged between Aegon and the Reach. Powerful, powerful families, probably hoping that these these marriage pacts would stop any would stop them from stopping their their um their vassals if the Blackfires came again. Oh, see you later, Alicia Kingston. Have a good time. But again, this sort of gives us a portrait of who of the young man of Duncan the Small that probably very much internalized the adventures, the passions, and the willfulness of his parents and his namesake, Duncan the Tall. This is not somebody that would probably be very happy having his life planned out for him. Like when you hear about how Egg traveled up and down the Seven Kingdoms, all the battles they fought in, all the tourneys, and then you compare that to the life that Egg had laid out for Duncan, it, it's, it sounds really unsatisfying. I mean, yeah, I mean, son, I did all these crazy things, but like, those were crazy. You should stay at court. You should, you'll marry a Baratheon girl. You'll be king. Everything will be great. Just, you know, don't, don't be wild like I was. And Duncan going like, screw that old man. Yeah, do as I say, not as I do. That did not work on Duncan the Small. In particular, Arian Brightflame may be the negative example that inspired Duncan the Small to not live that kind of life. At Prince Arian, uh, we get this quote from the Hedge Knight, which very much drives home the idea that, like I said earlier, the privileged life of Prince Arian led to somehow somewhat how little he valued people's lives and how he viewed himself as above other people. And this is between Makar, Prince Makar at the time, and Duncan the Tall. Prince Makar gave him an incredulous look. Did the child addle your wits, man? Aegon is a prince of the realm, the blood of the dragon. Princes are not made for sleeping in ditches and eating hard salt beef. He saw Dunk hesitate. What is it you're afraid to tell me? Say what you will, sir. Daron never slept in a ditch, I'll wager. Dunk said very quietly, and all the beef Arian ever ate was thick and rare and bloody, like as not. Magar Targaryen, Prince of Summerhall, regarded Dunk of Flea Bottom for a long time, his jaw working silently beneath his silvery beard. Finally, he turned and walked away, never speaking a word. So yeah, you can imagine that these, all these interactions led up to Duncan the Small being like, I want to have my own life. I want to have a life of adventure. I want to have a life of passion. I don't want a life of duty. I don't want a life of court. And that's where we get to Jenny of Old Stones. About that. <laughs> uh, so Jenny of Old Stones, we don't really learn a much about her early life or really that much about her. We get some snippets of personality, but the basic idea that gets communicated through the stories is that she was a half mad witch of Old Stones. We get the, the sources of information about this in the books are from the World of Ice and Fire, Barrison Selmy of all people, and Catelyn Stark, and Sansa, but given how important this story was to Catelyn when she was a little girl, you can imagine that Sansa learned the story from her. It's basically a river, Riverlands fairy tale anyway. Which, by the way, probably inspired some amount of the feelings that Sansa had for Joffrey, thinking about Jenny of Oldstones and all these other kind of things. Probably not that awesome. Yeah, we hear she's called a witch. 
Uh, she was just this strange young woman that lived in the castle ruins of uh, Old Stones. The nearby villagers treated her as very, very odd. They wanted nothing to do with her. Big Alice of uh, Rivers vibes. Kind of like Maggie the Frog, too. <laughs> yeah, she's a witch burner. That's generally the idea that you hear about Jenny of Old Stones. Um, if she went far enough, she probably would have ended up the same as, unfortunately, a lot of witches do in Westeros, or even people that are called them. She doesn't have, directly have to beat them. Uh, she also lived in the castle ruins of Old Stones. Now, Old Stones, if you, may, if you don't remember, is this ancient fortress that sits on the bank of the Blue Fork of the Trident. Uh, this is where House Mud called its home and ruled as kings of the Trident from the Trident itself up to the neck. Uh, the name Mud uh, maybe is some sort of reference to being related to the Cranach Bay and the Reeds because you often see these kind of names out of the neck as well in the Cranach Bay. I think the Cranach Bay sometimes are called Mud Eaters or Frog Eaters and that kind of stuff. And so that's an interesting connection there. House Mud were truly ancient house that lost everything likely a uh, likely name for the fact that the area around the blue fork uh, where old stones is is quite muddy and marshy <clears throat> so probably taking their name from the where they're from uh jenny claimed that she was descended from house mud and nobody really believed her because why would you this is similar to what we see in the golden company there's two members of house mud over there john mud and lorimus mud but there's no way of knowing it's true because House Mud did not lose their kingship of the Trident recently. It's not like uh, Heron Whore and House Whore losing their powers. It was, in, I mean, losing their land and their crown. They lost it thousands of years ago. The Muds were deposed during the Andal invasions uh, with uh, Christopher Mud and the Hammer of Justice. They ended up, I think he won a hundred battles but lost one. That's the story we get about the Muds. And... Is there a bloodline that goes back from Jenny of Old Stones to House Mud? God knows. It, it would be an unbelievable feat of even keeping track of marriages and bloodlines to even prove that. But clearly Jenny thought she was. She lived at Old Stone. She called herself a member of House Mud. Increased the idea about her strangeness and how people thought she was weird. It's like, well, why would you claim to be a member of House Mud? Who even cares anymore? House Mud have been gone for forever. Yeah, um, Christopher Hammer of Justice comes up during the Catelyn chapter with Rob. They see his tomb and they think about the fate of House Mud. Again, kind of foreshadowing for George about the fall of House Stark that's about to happen. You know, and also Christopher to Rob, where he won every battle but lost the war. The same story for Christopher and versus the Andal invasions. Well done, George. In Jenny's song, we hear about Jenny. She's dancing among those old stones, old stones, obviously, and with their ghosts. Uh, and that kind of tracks what we know about her. She lived basically alone as almost as a hermit, except with like one friend. Nobody around there even liked her in the long gone house mud. OK, so that's where the, that's where those lines in the story in the in the song come from. It's also something I theorized in the past, but. I've wondered if Old Stone may have been treated like Harrenhal and changed hands many times throughout history because the Muds were deposed thousands and thousands of years ago, but there were many kings of the Trident since then. Uh, you get like House Teague, House Strong, among others that claim they were kings of the Trident, but we have no idea where their homes were. Uh, I, in my House Strong video, I talked about how I thought that maybe House Strong took Old Stones as their fortress, that that's where they ruled as kings of the Trident from. It would make sense. Uh, I mean, their sigil is three branches of the Trident itself. 
having and there's no known empty fortresses other than old stones you can imagine this probably happened take old stones as your name as your home rules kings of the trident like the muds before you maybe trying to call back to them make some complicated claim that you're that you're related somehow to Christopher mud there's even a story about um a knight of old stones who tried to raise a rebellion against the storm kings who had conquered the riverlands and failed Oh, that's a good point, Carl Karsnark. He's talking about how saying someone's mud is a U.S. expression for saying someone's reputation is bad. And that works here. Jenny had a bad reputation. But that doesn't really seem to, to have impacted Jenny that much. She has, although she does have big Alice of River vibes, as I said earlier, there seems to be a lot of connection between Jenny of the Old Stones and the Old Gods dreaming, and particularly Liana Stark. The, the flowers in her hair motif is often repeated with Lyanna Stark wearing her crown of roses that Rhaegar gave her. Uh, it's very popularly depicted in the fandom and fan art of Lyanna that she's always wearing those flowers in her hair. Uh, this also goes back to this story of, I think that's the song, um, Maidens of the Season or something like that. They talk about flowers in her hair, that kind of thing. So then we get to this, how did they even meet? How did this weird girl from Old Stones who nobody really likes and seems to be kind of a witch and hangs out in this old fortress doing stuff nobody understands. How did she meet Duncan the Small? And the answer is, we don't really know. There's no story of their meeting. We don't hear any, um, any details of this. Maybe we'll get it if there's future Duncan Egg stories. Like, if we get, pa- we get closer to Summer Hall, George will uh, we'll probably depict Duncan and Jenny and maybe they'll talk about their meetings. All we know is that Duncan the Small was traveling through the Riverlands and met Jenny and fell in love. That's basically the story there. <laughs> but given that we know that Jenny's of Old Stones and that she was kind of that she was a peasant and she probably most people don't leave their homes, um, especially the peasants during this time, you can imagine that Duncan came across her probably at Old Stones or while he was traveling up the Blue Fork, and that's sort of a kind of a weird thing for a prince to do, especially someone like Duncan, like the crown prince. What was he doing in the Blue Fork area? Nobody, nobody really wants to go to the Blue Fork. It's muddy, it's marshy, There's, it's really hard traveling, there's always tons of insects. People usually go around the Blue Fork through Hagsmire and uh, the area of Seven Streams, where Tom of Seven Streams is from, in order to avoid it. The main reason for going up the Blue Fork is if you're going to House Malister. And we don't know anything at this time about the Malisters being a part of the realm in a big way. So why would Duncan be going there? It's, I, I, <laughs> there's no real reason for it that we know maybe we'll hear about in the future. But I think given with the impact of having Duncan as his uh, namesake and Egg of his father and all their stories, you could probably imagine that Duncan was essentially doing his version of their life where he just got on a horse and started riding, trying to have adventures, meeting people, meeting the common folk, much in the same way that those two did. I think that would work pretty well for what we know about the character, um, works pretty well for why this meeting would happen. Much of Duncan Egg's encounters in their own stories are just random traveling. Well, not really random. They're on their way somewhere, and a chance encounter, they meet somebody important. I can imagine that's what George probably has in mind for Duncan and Jenny. I also like the idea that I don't think a lot of people really know where Seven Streams is, like I was talking about, but it's here. It's here around the Blue Fork. That's where Tombo Seven is from. 
And he's, if you don't remember him from the books, he's the harp playing womanizer uh, who plays his harp and essentially nails women up and down the riverlands. Which, if you think about it, is kind of interesting in relation to uh, Rhaegar with his harp and all the women that were in love with him. And also the children of the forest who called themselves the singers of the earth. And the like House Mud and this whole area and be connected to the Cranogmeg. Uh, George could be indicating that there's something weird going on in this area with the children of the forest. <laughs> uh, Jaded Red <laughs> in my D campaign. She's going to propose the next Swamp Freak she comes across. Perfect. Swamp Freaks are great. You can also imagine that perhaps Blood Raven encouraged this. Maybe they're trying to encourage his old godways and tr- getting him to travel through the Riverlands and especially to parts that are maybe more connected to their religion. Uh, we don't know much about the religion of Duncan the Small, but it, it probably came up between Aegon and Betha and Brynden that maybe they could follow the old gods instead of the faith, especially when you have Bloodraven, a living avatar that their magic is real. It would be, it would be very important if you're an old god's adherent to try and get one of your own onto the throne. Like I said, there's not much reason for a crown prince to go there. All we really know is that Duncan met Jenny and fell in love and they got married. The problem here is that Duncan was already betrothed to Lord Lionel's daughter and had been since he was young. Uh, Egghead obviously designed this marriage to secure this relationship with Lionel Baratheon. And there's one thing I wanted to talk about here that I thought was really interesting, and that is that we know that this generation and well the previous generation of Targaryens is super into the ideas of prophecy and dragon dreams and magic the dragons were the dragons returning and then you have Jenny of Old Stones and she is given all of Martin's classic markers of being you know strange and witchy very much feels like an Alice Rivers kind of character kind of like a Melisandre kind of figure maybe like a Maggie the Frog Especially when you when you realize that Jenny had a woods witch friend. We'll get back to who that woods witch is later, but. Given the extreme amount of attention the Targaryens at this time are giving to prophecy the prince that was promised, you have to wonder if maybe that was part of what attracted Duncan. Maybe there were magical dreams he got about some woman on the blue fork or something like that. Or when he met her, maybe that companion, the Woods Witch, told, the, told him something about their future. This is where many people think that Bloodraven or the Children of the Forest might have had a hand in their meeting. This feels very, very, very similar to Howland Reed, who got his ass kicked after spending his time, after spending a lot of time in the Isle of Faces, going to the Herniate Heron Hall, and it's because he got his ass kicked in front of Lyanna Stark, who knew that she's sworn to House Stark, that it sent set in motion all the chain of events that met, that led to Rhaegar and Lyanna meeting and falling in love. So when there's a woods witch involved and there's a woman that seems very much like an Alice Rivers figure, you have to wonder if it was manipulated that Duncan the Small found his way to the Blue Fork and met Jenny. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Minaro Geek in the chat. Is it wrong for me to say that uh, Jenny gave Duncan that wop? Very oh, hell yeah, I mean we we don't know much about their relationship to each other, but yeah, maybe she gave him that sweet <laughs> that sweet swampy <laughs> sweet swampy ass, <laughs> or you know just just gave him a walk on the wild side. Let's say 
something very much outside of what he knows from his courtly life. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. <laughs> oh, I'm going to regret that one. Uh, we also know that Jenny gives big magical fairy girl vibes that you see from uh, from popular culture. For Duncan, it seems that Jenny represents for him kind of this adventurous life that he doesn't have and the lore of the unknown and magic and the old gods that would reminded him of the people he knows around him, like Blood Raven, GRC Star, Beth Blackwood. <laughs> yeah, that. You can imagine there's an attraction there for Duncan that may not have existed for everybody. All the Targaryens previously, he's particularly probably susceptible to this through his, through the people that he knows. That mirror swamp, yeah. <laughs> when he's describing uh, Tiana Merriweather, sure. Maybe George is playing on that again. God damn it, George, stop using that metaphor. <laughs> uh, but yeah, th this could also be that also with the Targaryen interest in prophecy and magic, Duncan would have been more willing to engage with somebody like this than most other people. Uh, and this is where we get back to Alice Rivers. Now, Al Jenny does not claim to be related to Alice Rivers, aka Alice Strong, but it's certainly very possible. We know that at the end of Fire and Blood, Alice Rivers had a child with Aemon One-Eye, Aemon Targaryen, and she was ruling Harrenhal, which of course was the seat of House Strong, um, as Witch Queen of Harrenhal. Gorman Peak decides we can't have a Witch Queen of Harrenhal, and he sends forces to go remove her from power. We get an infamous story about a man being strangled to death after talking to her uh, with a... But from nowhere, it kind of reminds you of Shadow Babies. I believe the story is that he ended up with marks around his neck that looks like a woman's hand. Gorman Peak, and again with this force that he sent, they get stopped by Winter Fever. So by the end of Fire and Blood, Alice is still ruling Harrenhal. We know that Alice eventually is no longer in control of Harrenhal. It goes to the Wentz at some point, and I believe before that it went to the Lostons. But we don't know what happened to Alice Rivers, and we don't know what happened to her half-strong, half-Targaryen child. Um, I've theorized in the past, like I talked about earlier, that the Strongs may have held Old Stones and ruled from the Blue Fork as their seat of power, much like the Muds before them. They were kings of the Trident. So, maybe Alice saw the end of her reign coming in the flames, like she talked about, well, that um, Aemon One I talked about, that Alice was leading him everywhere with her visions in the flame, and escaped into the wilds of the Trident, maybe going to the areas around the Blue Fork, and old stones. It would certainly explain why Jenny gets very badly treated by those around her and they think she's a witch. Well, if she's somehow related to Alice Rivers, maybe over the generations they remembered that part about her. The timeline does allow for it. Um, this would have been about 70 or 80 years before Jenny of Old Stones meets Duncan the Small, so there could have been the child with Aemond has another child, that's Jenny. That could be where she comes from. Uh, we also know <laughs> that Duncan the Tall has very Luca Moore the Lusty vibes about him and had bastard children um, all throughout the kingdoms. We know of one in Brienne of Tarth. There are most likely others. Um, if you don't remember Luca Moore the Lusty, he was a king's guard from House Strong who married three women and had something like 16 children and then got castrated and sent to the wall. Dunk seems to be intent on playing that himself. 
The timeline would also work here if, during the village hero, in Penny Tree or that general area, which is not that far from the Blue Fork and Old Stones, maybe he meets another girl. Maybe he fought, maybe he has a romance with her and ends up, you know, giving her the Duncan the Tall treatment. Perhaps Jenny is a bastard of Duncan the Tall. That would be interesting for George to have the two families intersect again. Again, just tinfoil, but you never know. But yeah, I, I think that would be really interesting, either related to Alice Rivers, either what, well, basically what I'm saying here is I want Jenny of Oldstones to be related to House Strong. And I think these are two ways George could write it in a way that works, uh, either through Alice Rivers and her child with Eamon, or maybe a bastard of Duncan the Tall. I think that would be super interesting. And basically in every story <laughs> that we've seen so far from Duncan, he basically hooks up with somebody or almost does. Although in... Um, the mystery night that is with John John the Fiddler, but no matter what, Duncan's story is him almost getting laid, and we know that he does later. So, I think that'd be kind of fun if the village hero ends up connecting to Jenny of Oldstones. So then we have the problem with Duncan and Jenny, <laughs> and that is the laughing storm. Unlike when Egg married Betha and nobody cared because Egg was nowhere near the Iron Throne, Duncan was near the Iron Throne. He was next in line. Uh, he was next in line. He was the Prince of Dragonstone. He was the heir to the Iron Throne. So Duncan marrying a commoner and also breaking this betrothal with House Baratheon was a huge, huge deal. A question here from uh, Rosinante. Does Jenny being part Targaryen descendant tie up things too neatly? Kind of leaves no room for random occurrences. Everything is connected rather too connected. Yeah, that's true. Um, it, although George really, really loves the idea of secret commoners or commoners with secret royal bloodlines. He loves playing on that idea. Young Griff himself is a take on that idea. Also, John, um, well, he's not really a commoner, but he's <clears throat> he's royalty hiding as a bastard north of the wall, that kind of thing. So I soup I don't know if that would make for a good story, but it would certainly fill my love of how strong. Ah, good point about Gendry. Gendry very much is the same thing. He is the royal bloodline that doesn't know it. So anyway, so we get to we get to their marriage themselves. The lords and the very and the very powerful in the realm, especially those behind House Baratheon, would be were extremely furious that Duncan would marry a commoner and bring his betrothal. And it, in particular, I want to bring this up again. It's a commoner that is very clearly not an adherent of the faith of the seven and has this weird woods witch who keeps saying prophecies and stuff. Uh, we learn about those prophecies later. You can imagine again when you have Duncan, whose mother is Betha Blackwood, Bloodraven at court, and then Duncan gives up his marriage to the Baratheons and comes back with a woods witch and whoever Jenny of Oldstones are, you can see that those of the Faith of the Seven could start being scared for them losing their hold on the Iron Throne. So it's not just Lionel that's probably mad about this, it is the powerful within the Faith, and particularly maybe those in Old Town. Egg is also furious about this. He and his counselors try very, 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 very hard to resecure the rebellious Blackfire sympathizers with these marriages he made through his children and alliances to make sure that if another Blackfire shows up on their shores, they don't have supporters. Duncan and Jenny and their marriage kind of blows that to pieces for Egg, especially with the Stormlands, which as we see with young Griff later in The Winds of Winter and A Dance with Dragons, it's very likely that an invasion coming from Essos would probably have Stormlands be the vanguards against those invasions. So securing Lionel Baratheon's support is super, super important. 
And this also kind of ties into growing fears about Egg himself. Egg had been putting through a lot of reforms that were focused on helping the small folk, removing the Lord's rights to things. You can imagine that these Lords saw this marriage as a continuation of the fact that Duncan won't be reversing these when he's king. If he's marrying a commoner and he's very much, and it seems like he's trying to imitate Duncan and Egg's life, no sign in the future that these will be rolled back in any way. You can always hope that the next king will do it. Doesn't seem that way. Another small folk sympathizer in power. Again, big, big problem. So what we hear happens is that Egg, his small council, the High Septon, the Grand Maester, all try and get um, Duncan's marriage to Jenny set aside. That they want to essentially force a divorce since the king did not give his consent to the marriage. Duncan adamantly refuses, which of course he would. Why wouldn't he? He loves Jenny through his mother and his father, and Duncan seems to have this streak of independence and want to do things his own way. So he essentially tells them to go to hell. He's not divorcing Jenny. They come back and say, well, you can't marry Jenny and also be the heir to the Iron Throne. And Duncan throws up two fingers to them and says, fuck it, I'm not going to be the Prince of Dragonstone anymore. He gives up his claim, he abdicates and chooses Jenny of Oldstones, unbelievably for many people in the realm, over being King of Westeros. This is a move that echoes characters we see like with Aemon, Maester Aemon, with how he went to the Wall, maybe that was some sort of inspiration to it. Jon Snow later when he's offered to be Lord of Winterfell from Stannis and says no out of devotion to his father and the old gods. You can see how this idea of passion over power was a very powerful thing in the realm. This is also around the time Duncan the Tall's, I mean, Duncan the Small's nickname changes from Duncan the Small to the Prince of Dragonflies. Now, when you hear the story of Jenny of Olsons and Duncan, Prince of Dragonflies, that sounds kind of romantic. It sounds like a cool name, but it probably wasn't a cool name. This seems very much like it was an insult aimed at Duncan. And in particular, when we talk again about the Blue Fork and the Old Stones, those are very swampy areas. There's a lot of marsh there. There's a lot of mud, and therefore you get a lot of insects, you get dragonflies. So this was probably a dig at Duncan for choosing to have dragonflies, aka Jenny, over the Iron Throne and a Baratheon bride. I can imagine it was not very kind for Jenny. Her time at court probably got a lot of jokes about her common upbringing, her being much like we see with Howland Reed and his children, how they get made fun of for being from swamp areas, how it's form of classism but yeah he's the prince of dragonflies who would rather have those than than a crown but this is something that well i'll get to this later so you think this is like the crisis is over right everything's well and dandy duncan has his jenny everything's great Ooh, pump the bricks we haven't talked about lionel baratheon yet and that is a huge problem dunk lionel baratheon is not happy with Duncan just abdicating because he has had an insult done to him, to his daughter, according to Lionel anyway, that the breaking of the betrothal was more than anything that he could stand. And this is something that goes back to, I think it's important to understand, the relationship between Egg and Lionel Baratheon, and that is that they have known each other and been sort of friends for quite a long time. And it starts in the Hedge Knight. Lionel Baratheon fought beside Duncan the Tall in the Trial by Seven against Arian Brightflame. And he did it because Egg convinced him. 
Uh, here's the quote. Sir Stefan. Sir Lionel gave him a puzzled look. It was your squire who came to me. The boy, Aegon. My own lad tried to chase him off, but he slipped between his legs and turned a flag and a wine over my head. He laughed. There's not been a trial of seven for more than a hundred years. Do you know that? I was not about to miss a chance to fight the Kingsguard knights and tweak Prince Makar's nose in the bargain. So this is where the two of them met. This is where their relationship started. And you can imagine that Lionel felt very strongly about his relationship to the future king, that they were friends, that they go back years, that it's an important part of his life. And then Duncan the Small essentially tells Lionel or how he interprets it and his daughter to go to hell. Doesn't go well. Again, this is also a marriage that was going to be a very powerful one against the Blackfires. It reconfirmed the Stormlands' allegiance against the Blackfires. If it's not already, it should be ringing in your head right now. Robert Baratheon, <laughs> Rhaegar, and Lyanna. It's very much a similar story. They're related to each other. This will come back later. We'll talk about it a little bit later. Unlike Robert, though, the Laughing Storm does not have the support for taking on the Iron Throne. Uh, Lionel crowns himself Storm King and rebels against Aegon. All we hear about it is that it was a brief but bloody rebellion that ends in an unusual way. Well, for first thing, we know that we don't really hear about Lionel getting a lot of support or many allies for his cause. Apparently not that many people were as pissed about the breaking of the patrol as he was. We don't even hear about the Blackfires jumping in and helping which you would think they would take any opportunity to join a rebellion against the Iron Throne. They may not have heard about it because it was brief. Maybe if it went on longer, um, Lionel would have built support from um, those in Westeros, particularly, again, among the uh, Blackfires. Doesn't happen. The rebellion ends, though, where Lionel agrees to a trial by combat. Crazy. <laughs> Lionel Baratheon says, you know what? I've had enough with, uh, with these battles. I'll fight you, Aegon. For it's not really sure clear what the stakes are, um, but Egg chooses Duncan the Tall, his Lord Commander of the King's Guard, to fight against Lionel, who chooses himself. I, again, I don't know what the stakes are. Like, if Lionel wins this, what happens? Is Egg killed? Is Duncan killed? Are they imprisoned? Are is Egg forced to abdicate? Not not clear what the <laughs> what the stakes of this rebellion were because it was. Was he going to force Duncan to divorce Jenny and marry his daughter? It's, again, not really clear. One really cool thing I, that I love thinking about for this encounter is that it's... I've theorized in the past, me and Amanda, our Crowfood's daughter, have talked about how um, Lucamore the Lusty's children may have ended up in particular places, and one of them is Storm's End. We learned in Fire and Blood new information from George where these bastard children of, of Lucamore the Lusty ended up, and one of the places is Storm's End. And it's afterwards, after Lucamore's bastards show up, we suddenly see the Baratheons go from being kind of Illyrian in, in stature to all of a sudden they are gigantic. We get Robert Baratheon, we get Lionel the Laughing Storm, who is almost as tall and almost as strong as Duncan himself. Um, they're pretty much physical matches for each other. And again, I have the theory that with my mug, that Duncan is related to how strong through uh, Lucamore the Lusty. Or, or I think I, I, Amanda came up with that, but I love the idea that two members of how strong in weird ways are fighting against each other for the Iron Throne for Targaryens. We also get the Baratheon bastard families, which are House Boiling, I think that's how you pronounce it, and Wensington, who pop up after this time. So I'm wondering 
seems very likely that those lusty children of Lucamore ended up hooking up with some Brathians over time and probably found their way into the main main bloodline. This also shows just a massive amount of trust that Egg has in Dunk. Whatever the stakes are, if Dunk loses this battle against Lionel Baratheon, who is also huge and strong and a great warrior himself, dire consequences for Egg and his dynasty. But Duncan wins the duel, doesn't kill Lionel. Although you could in a trial by combat. We know that's you're allowed to do it even though it's um, frowned upon, basically. The aftermath of the rebellion, Egg does not go all fire and blood on the, Barath- on the Baratheons, even though he could. The Baratheons and Lionel rebelled against the Iron Throne. They are traitors. But instead, he does not strip the Baratheons of Storm's End. He doesn't remove them as Lord Paramount's. As rebels and traitors, Egg chooses instead he's going to heal this wound. He promises his youngest daughter, Rael, to Lord Lionel's daughter. Which is something that's actually pretty unusual. The Targaryens were not big fans of having their daughters marry into other families. They preferred to have them marry within the Targaryen dynasty. We hear about how Egg wanted to stop the incest of the Targaryens for some reason. Well, not for some reason, it's gross, but he was trying to stop that from happening, so he sends out his daughter, Rael, to marry who we know later is Ormon Baratheon. She's pretty young at this point, and she serves as cupbearer and lives at Storm's End with the Baratheons. Again, this is probably an attempt by Egg to stop what happened with Duncan, where part of the reason he married Jenny of Oldstones is he didn't know his bride. They didn't. It was an arranged royal marriage. They were going to probably meet each other on the day they were married, or or something close to that. So, trying to fix that from happening. Ormond Baratheon, of course, is the grandfather to Robert, Robert Stannis and Renly. Jenny of Oldstones and Duncan the Small, their choice is echoing throughout history. The only reason we have the Baratheons, the only, probably the only reason Melisandre thinks that Stannis could be the prince I was promised and that he has but the dragon is probably through this marriage that everyone knows that the Baratheons are pretty closely related to the Targaryens at this time. So Laughing Storm Rebellion is over. He's no longer Storm King. A marriage is made. Although uh, Viseria in my um, in my patron slack made a good point that Duncan does not really feel any consequences for his actions in this case. That Instead, it's Rael who is forced to marry somebody she doesn't know in order to fix his mistakes. Like, Duncan doesn't have to be, he doesn't get to be king anymore, but that's kind of it. There's, we know there's a brief bloody rebellion, so quite a lot of people probably died. Rael has to marry the Baratheon guy, uh, Ormond Baratheon, <laughs> Baratheon guy. Uh, he's the, he's actually the heir to the Baratheon house, so Duncan does not really feel many consequences for what's going on here. Um, later in life, Duncan and Jenny stay at court. They, they get to stay married. She becomes known as Lady Jenny, even though she's not a lady. And also, in particular, the Woods Witch stays with them at court. We also hear a cool story about uh, Duncan the Small, and that is he's the one that gave Barristan the Bold his nickname. Barristan entered the tourney at Blackhaven at 10 years old as a mystery knight, and nobody would fight him because he was obviously a child. Uh, nobody was going to do it. But Duncan on a whim, sort of, again, this sort of adventurous streak and the willingness to give people a chance that would normally not get it, that we know from uh, Duncan and Aegon were critical to their lives, says, you know what? I will joust against the 10-year-old. And he beats him. It's not like a serious joust. Afterwards, he unmasks Barristan and he says, oh, this is a bold boy. Barristan the bold. 
and that sticks to him the rest of his life. Yeah, the it's <laughs> sort of this really interesting thing that goes around where what were they doing married to each other? Why were they married? How did they meet? And the legacy of this romance that that existed between them, the consequences were gigantic throughout Westeros. It's it only seems that because Lionel was willing to do a trial by combat to end his rebellion that didn't get as bad as it had to be. Interesting to think about. Uh, I thought I would uh, answer a couple questions I got from Patreon and stuff, because we're about an hour in at the moment. Um, a lot of really good questions that I, um, that I got from people. Let's see here. Oh, these are all about the Ghost of High Heart, aren't they? Uh, Eric F. asks, if Gurm writes until he's 100 and finishes all 15 Doug and Ed books, how will we see Aegon the Fifth by the end? What is the overall lessons of Egg's journey, particularly in light of the subsequent rulers rolling back most of his uh, reforms? Um, does Egg learn all these liberal values by interacting with the peasants and lesser lords only be signed by the fuel system that was unable to modernize? I would love for George to finish Duncan Egg. I want to see everything up to Summer Hall, every single Duncan Egg story. I want to see him. I would almost rather see that than A Dream of Spring, to be honest. I really love Duncan Egg, and I think they're, they're great stories. In particular, this one, this one that we know so little about, Jenny and Duncan, would obviously be a big part of those, uh, especially with the lead up to Summer Hall. And this sort of gets to something I wanted to talk about a little bit, and that is how this particular marriage also blew up Egg's plans for the future, for his reforms, and for his children. Because it doesn't just stop with Duncan and Jenny. After Egg relented on their marriage, the rest of their children said, well, except for Rael, who was forced to marry the Baratheon, Ormond Baratheon, I mean, what's good for Dunk and what's good for you and Betha is good for me. And all of them ripped up their marriage packs that Egg had so carefully laid out for them. Uh, Jaehaerys, who becomes Jaehaerys I, begins his incestuous romance with his sister Shara. Uh, they were 14, 15, ran away and get married. And when they get caught, Jaehaerys says to him, well, you let Duncan marry Jenny. Why can't we marry each other? Other than the Targaryen incestuous stuff, Egg finds himself unable to go against Jaehaerys. So he's been caught in sort of a logical trap. He's like, oh shit, I kind of did do that. All right, well, I guess you guys can marry, even though it's incestuous and I don't want it to happen. Though this may have been, this is something I was thinking about in terms of what Egg was trying to do with his, with his rule. The end of incest may have been try to, him trying to heal whatever kind of wound there was with him marrying um black betha in terms of the rise of the old gods within the dynasty and him saying well i'll get rid of the incest none of my kids will marry each other because the incest was a big problem for the faith of the seven while jaharis goes ahead and blows that up by marrying his sister not great uh so that blows up marriages between the targaryens and the tyrells and the tullys and you have to imagine that egg worked really hard for those two that they were big parts of his plans for securing the realm. Those are two Lord Paramounts that he now just pissed off with the marriages not going through. Then you get another one, Prince Daron, obviously named for Egg's dead dreamer brother. He refuses to marry Olena, Ga uh, Olena Redwine because he was, um, he was gay, he was homosexual. He doesn't force him to marry Olena. Lena, Olena instead marries House Tyrell, becoming Olena Ty Tyrell as we know her. In her PO, well, not in her POV, in the books and in the show, we learn that she didn't like Daron very much, and it's probably pretty clear why he wasn't interested in her. He had, um, 
he had a lover himself and she later brags that she had like a hand in breaking up the arrangement she's like oh i don't want to marry that guy and instead married lord tyrell knowing what we know about daron maybe she just encouraged him to follow his heart and be with his um i forget his name actually it's something norwich but essentially to end the engagement again daron cites jaharis and shara and also duncan and jenny and says well i don't want to marry olena you can't make me and ed goes all right fine but again this is the this was the red wines another very powerful family in the reach so now egg has found himself pissing off the stormlands he's pissed off the reach the two most power two of the most powerful families in the reach and also the riverlands through through the tullys not great oh jeremy norwich thank you guilty undertaker so if you're thinking about what egg was trying to do in his in his kingship where he's trying to reform things and make it better for the small folk he just lost big allies in that cause and not only that he may have lost allies in a future blackfire rebellion which he's thinking about all the time um he had three lord paramounts that were going to be married to his children and that's just gone those are just now not a thing so it kind of forces him into alternate means of securing the realm since he really could not be sure when the next rebellion would come especially with lionel baratheon literally rebelling against him and we start hearing this line that egg said he wants to remake the realm with justice and fairness for all, and he can't do it. Therefore, he needs dragons. You can sort of read behind the lines here that the reason he needs them is because he has lost a lot of support from the High Lords. They were already mad about his reforms. They probably a lot of them were probably mad about the old gods' rise in his in his dynasty, and now the broken marriages and the betrothals. It's like not only. Not only are those broken betrothals, but can you even take Egg at his word? If he's not even willing to make his children go through with their marriages, how can you be sure he'll be there when, you, when he says he will? Oh, a good comment here from Lady Shar. Um, have I thought about Arya and Sandor and Brienne and Podrick's travels as the current timeline version of Duncan Egg? Yes, absolutely. George is, um, I think of Sandor, Brienne, and Duncan as sort of the same character archetype, but George has just sort of changed the starting positions. He's made Dunk a uh, a commoner. He made um, Brienne, well, he made Brienne a woman. He made Sandor also um, of a knightly house, but gave him those burns. And they're like at different points in their timeline. Dunk is the early version, then Brienne, then Sandor. Sort of the, um, the loss of innocence in those kind of characters. When you think about what made Summerhall happen, why Egg was so serious about uh, hatching these dragon eggs, why he needed this to happen, you can trace this back to Duncan and Jenny. Their romance, their marriage, really fucked up his plans. <laughs> Screwed them up in a really big way. And he starts deciding, well, he can't rely on his powerful vassals anymore. People maybe don't trust him anymore. They're upset about all these things. It's like, well, okay, well, dragons. Dragons will fix everything. I gotta get those dragons. And that's kind of a, an unfortunate tragedy and a side effect of this that George is laying out the consequences of what seems to be a good and wholesome thing that two people fell in love and married each other and it's a really great story that the people talk about for decades later but you can trace a lot of big tragedies within the Targaryen family directly to Duncan and Jenny. Oh, 150 likes? All right. There we go. Joe Magician with his silly hat. <laughs> Joe is ascended. <laughs> Yeah, 
getting very magical up in here. That's right. So yeah, and it doesn't stop there. I mean, I'm going to talk about it a little bit later how this continuing repercussions of Duncan and Jenny continues through Rhaegar and Lyanna and even to the current timeline. But the most, this is the most direct thing that Egg and Duncan and their death at Summerhall is indirectly kind, well, kind of directly related to the fallout of um, Duncan giving up his crown and pissing off the Baratheons. All, these all fall into place. And that's one of those things where people think about, well, what was the Children of the Forest role in this? What was Bloodraven's role in this? You can, you can sort of see how maybe you can get to that conspiratorial place. Like maybe they had something to do with it. Maybe they were trying to bring down um, the Targaryens in a particular way. I mean, you can see that happening. Oh, in 175, this baby will go on. So slash that like button. We got 220 people walking, watching today. Thanks so much, guys. This is one of my favorite topics. I'm really happy to talk about it. Uh, so let's grab another question. Actually, may as well just go into this now. There's a bunch of questions here. Um, Ramona asked about this and also uh, Niado and uh, Learn it and Clint from Learn Hands podcast, who's also on my patron Slack. By the way, all the people that get um that get featured on my channel, they all get invites to the, to the Slack. So some of them are active, some not, but you can still talk to them. So they wanted to talk about the Woods Witch that Jenny brought to court. And who is this person? So... It seems, based on what little we know about Jenny and Duncan, that their their marriage may have been influenced heavily by this Woods Witch, and we know that she definitely influenced another marriage in the Targaryen dynasty, and that is that she made the prophecy that the prince that would promise would come from the line of Aerys and Rhaella. Big whoops on that one, because unlike uh, their parents, Jaehaerys and Shara, Aerys and Rhaella didn't like each other. They had no interest in marrying. Uh, Rael is in love with Sir Bonifer Hasty. Uh, we meet later in the story. He's leading the Holy Hundred. And Ares was in love with Joanna Lannister, who would, lady, who would later marry Tywin Lannister. But it's based on this prophecy, the Woods Witch saying that the Prince of Promise would come from them. Prince Jaehaerys convinces his father, King Aegon, to allow the marriage, and Jaehaerys forced his unhappy children to wed. It's not really clear why Egg did this, because we previously have examples of him saying like, all right, well, I can't make him marry each other, even though it fucks up everything for me. In this case, he says, you know what? You two don't even like each other. And I'm going to make you marry. Why? Because this Woods Witch said so, because she has a prophecy about that the world will be saved from your from your union, which I, I think speaks a lot to Egg's growing descent into the world of prophecy and magic in this time. And linking, again, Jenny of Oldstones to the Woods Witch and the union of Duncan and her, maybe there was some sort of magic dreaming or influence there that led them to be together. Also interesting that Jaehaerys made this happen. Not cool. Don't do that to your kids. Don't force them to marry each other. Gross. But they went through with it. Aegon commanded to happen. And although they put up objections, they said they didn't like each other, they didn't love each other, they didn't want to marry their brother and sister, it's gross, Egg made it happen. And from that union, we get Rhaegar Targaryen, and Daenerys, and Viserys. So this witch witch seemingly broke up the heir to the Iron Throne's relationship to the Baratheons, got him to give up his claim to the Iron Throne, and then forced through an incestuous marriage that ended up leading to another Baratheon um, rebellion that has to do with their children. 
I don't know what it means, but it's certainly interesting. Again, this and this links uh, Duncan and Jenny directly to Rhaegar. He only exists because of Duncan and Jenny, although indirectly. And this is the question that I think a lot of people, well, obviously that um, Ramona and Yado and Clint asked about, is this Woods Witch, a Children of the Forest, and is she the ghost of High Heart? I think those are two different questions. So Jenny of Oldstone said that the Woods Witch was a child of the forest, but we see child's, Children of the Forest in the rest of the story, and they don't look anything like the ghost of High Heart. Um, they are kind of cat-like. They have these really big weird eyes. They have what's called dappled skin, which kind of looks like camouflage. Even if they were albino, I'm not really sure. It's said also that the Woods Witch was a dwarf, and they called her, I think at one in one of the quotes, she's called grotesque. So it doesn't seem like she's a children of the forest. Yeah, they have four fingers, they have claws. They don't look anything like the ghost of High Heart, who just looks like a shrunken small woman. So not a children of the forest. Jenny's probably wrong about that. But if... But the ghost of High Heart part, I think is probably correct. Um, when we meet the ghost of High Heart, if you don't remember, she's the uh, woods witch that lives among the weirwood groves in Arya's chapter. She's the one that gives out all these prophecies and, well, she says her dreams, which all end up becoming true. And the reason people think that she's the, this woods witch that came with Jenny of Oldstones, it's that she has to be paid, but not in any like actual goods. The only thing she wants is Tom 07 on his harp to play Jenny's song. And she says her Jenny's song. And then while it's being played, the ghost of High Heart uh, cries and rocks and holds herself um, apparently very distraught at hearing the song about her Jenny. And she also says that she gorged on grief at Summer Hall. Um, yes, good call, Guilty Undertaker. She also wants to be killed by, uh, wants to be kissed by Lem Lemoncloak, who many uh, Radio Westeros has said that uh, that may be Richard Lonmouth, a squire of Rhaegar Targaryen. Um, so with all these things in mind, and the fact that this witch, witch disappeared after Summer Hall, we, never, we don't even hear what happened to her. A lot of people, and I tend to agree, think that that's witch, witch is also the ghost of High Heart. That she survived the blaze and went on to essentially seclude herself at High Heart. Uh, Sam Ringson asks, how many more likes still hats? Well, I got one on. Uh, we're at 161. We get up to 175. We'll put on the Gurm hat with the awesome turtle. Um, yeah, pay, pay the ghost of High Heart with music for her dreams. I think this also, if it's true, tells us a lot about the meeting of Duncan and Jenny, like I've been alluding to. What if... Duncan was told some of these dreams like we see happens to Beric Dondarrion and how they act on them. What if he saw him some sort of prophecy or future or his destiny? Like, what if she talked about the dragons returning, a thing Duncan would be very aware of, aware of from his family? Uh, maybe the ghost of High Heart would have talked about a dream where Duncan and Jenny get married and from that, like, the savior of the world is coming. That could be a very enticing thing for a child of Egg. Um, maybe even the idea that from their marriage, like the prince that will promise will be born or that the darkness will stop if they marry. Very likely that something like that happened with the relationship between, De between Jenny and the ghost of High Heart. But the problem here is that we know from the ghost of High Heart that her visions and her dreams, while they are true, are extremely symbolic and tough to understand. Nobody knows what they mean. You really only understand what they mean afterwards after they happen. We also see the same thing with Melisandre, where 
she tries very hard to interpret the flames correctly and kind of fails a bunch at that to uh to her chagrin you can imagine maybe the same thing happened with duncan and jenny that they thought the dreams were about them and instead it blew up in their faces which you know adds a lot more tragedy to the ideas of junk duncan and jenny that they may not have only just been in love they may have thought that with the two of them meeting and fulfilling these dreams that seem to come true that maybe they will help their the target maybe duncan will help the targaryens maybe he'll fulfill all these dragon dreams from daron and aemon and um and egg and be a way to help their family and instead it absolutely just blew up in their faces well literally with summer hall about that one <laughs> i think i think it's definitely true though that the ghost of high heart is probably jenny's witch witch and that to Ramona's question, she asked, uh, do you think she understands the influence she had on the princes Duncan and Rhaegar, presuming the last one confer with her and leading on the ruins of his birthplace? Um, this goes into the other part. There's been a theory for a while that I tend to believe that Rhaegar met the ghost of Highheart at Summerhall and that she's the reason he went back there so often. We hear a lot about Rhaegar that when he was younger, he would go, he would travel to Summerhall and he would sleep among the ruins, um, kind of incognito. But it's hard not to see the parallels between Tomos Seven and Rhaegar. They're both harp players. Uh, Tomos Seven plays Jenny's song, and there's been a a, a really good theory wrote by um, uh, Cantus talks about how the song that Rhaegar played, the one that he's famous for, the one about the sadness and tragedy that made everyone fall in love with him on his harp, may have been Jenny's song. And if he knows Jenny's song, and the Ghost of High Heart only wants to hear Jenny's song. It could very well be that Rhaegar was highly influenced by the Ghost of Highheart. Maybe he met with her and paid her in songs, just like Tom 07 for her dreams, dreams of the future. I mean, she says she gorged on grief on Summer Hall, so that would kind of make a lot of sense. I really like the idea that it's Jenny's song that Rhaegar played, and that's the song that made Lyanna fall in love with him. That would be a really powerful parallel since the, the, two, the couples, the two couples seem so directly linked. In terms of the sort of the innocent nature of how they met and why they fell in love with each other what them being with each other meant for the realm how everything blew up presumably because Rhaegar's falling prophecy maybe Duncan was too it would be so George like if that's what he did if he had Jenny's song the song about the two that couple is what ends them gets gets them attracted and ends up repeating the cycle over and over and over again. I think Rhaegar is probably very aware of the story of Duncan and Jenny and that is nobody knows what happened to Jenny of Old Stones after Summerhall after the explosion. We know Duncan died. We know Egg died. We know that Duncan the Tall died. No mention of Black Betha, also no mention of uh, Jenny of Oldstones. There we go. Martin Hat deployed. Joe R. R. Martin. Oh my God. Well, I'm reading. I'm reading Meat House Man at the moment, and oof. Uh, yeah, my hair's pretty gray at the moment. Well, it will be for the rest of my life. That's how. That's how it's gonna go. Yeah. So, did Jenny of Oldstones die in Summer Hall? We know that the Ghost of Highheart says she gorged in grief. And that she wants to hear the song about her Jenny implication that she's no longer alive, that she the memory is a very painful one for her. And that sort of leads you to the to the idea that Jenny probably did die in the flames as well. But there is, I think, a much more heart wrenching option that Jenny did escape the flames, but had to watch 
as her beloved husband died in the flames and was out there with Ares and Rayella while Rhaegar was being born. So presumably that would mean the ghost of Highheart and also Jenny survived and that Jenny just decided to disappear from the world. The, the lyrics that we get from the story itself about Jenny's song are pretty short. We only hear about the high in the halls of the kings who are gone. Jenny would dance with her ghosts. Uh, Dan and Dave and um, they wrote the rest of the lyrics for Jenny's song, the ones that showed up in the TV show. And it would be very heartbreaking if that's how Jenny's life ended, that after the death of Duncan, after Summerhall, after basically most of the people she's known to grow, she's learned to love and be around, all died in those flames, that she went back to Summerhall where Duncan found her and lived out the rest of her life. Uh, if she went back to some, when she went back to Old Stones and, you know, high in the halls of the kings who are gone could mean House Mud, but it could also mean the Targaryens. Jenny would dance with her ghosts. Again, that could be talking about House Mud, but it could also mean the people she lost at Summerhall and her family and friends that would have burned up with them. That would be, both are pretty heartbreaking, both are pretty tragic, but with the lyrics... I think you can make maybe the case that Jenny survived and lived out the rest of her life in sadness at what she's lost. It would be especially heartbreaking if the Jenny, as she danced with her ghosts, the ghost is Duncan the Small. I don't really like thinking about that one. That sounds like just like way too much heartbreak. Uh, what about the theory that she's a children, a child of the forest? So like I was talking about, the children of the forest don't look anything like the ghost of Hyrule. They don't look like anything like Jenny, but there are seemingly children of the forest uh, human hybrids, sort of. Um, it's, it's suggested that the Cranog men, that their slight stature and the color of their eyes and the way the rest of the Westeros treats them is part of maybe sort of racist against them because maybe they're related to the children of the forest that somehow they, um, they made it at some point or the green men themselves. So I don't think either of them are children of the forest, but they could be related to them somehow. Like Blood Raven is a green seer. He's the last green seer. He's He's become the weirwood themselves, but he's not a child of the forest by any stretch of the imagination. So I don't think that's necessary. But I think the idea that Jenny thinks or thought that the ghost of Iheart was a child of the forest may have been due to her magic dreams and being a albino, which is what we can learn about them. Uh, yes, there's also big vibes of Night King, Night Queen vibes that the story of the Night King on top of the wall, seeing the Night Queen and running away with her and founding his own kingdom and essentially rebelling against humanity. Um, you can sort of see that here with Jenny and Duncan, although Duncan doesn't actually do that. Duncan does not like start sacrificing to the others. He doesn't rebel against the Iron Throne to be with his wife. He, he just decides not to be king anymore. So let's grab another question here. Oh, Clint has the theory that the ghost of Highheart is also Alice Rivers. Not sure about that one. Uh, that would make Alice Rivers approximately 150 years old. Although that does track with the children of the forest that they do live uh, centuries, that they live for hundreds and hundreds of years. Very possible that if there was if there was a child of the forest hybrid with a human, maybe they would have an extended life. But from what what we see of Alice, pretty sure she's just pretty sure she's human. But interesting idea that she might be the ghost of High Art. We also know that Alice is not. Um, an albino like the ghost of high heart. So probably not on that one. A uh, question here from Twitter from La Citadella Egg. They asked, who composed Jenny's song? Was it Rhaegar? I do, this is something that's come around a lot that did, if Rhaegar was playing Jenny's song, did he also write it? Um, 
I don't think so, because it seems like Jenny's song was a folk song that everybody knows long before this happened. Like, um, it would be unusual if Rhaegar wrote Jenny's song and then became so popular that Tom 7 knows how to play it and that it's a, a folk song across the kingdoms. He, we know he does write songs. I don't know if he wrote this one, but a cool idea. It would be interesting if inspired by Jenny and Duncan that Rhaegar decided to write a song about them and maybe it was inspired by meeting the ghost of Highheart. Maybe that's who, maybe it's the audience who it was written for. He, she wanted to hear a song about her beloved Jenny and so Rhaegar came up with the chords and the words and started singing about the high in the halls, the kings who were gone, Jenny would dance with her ghosts, all that stuff. Oh, a uh, comment here from uh, Guilty Undertaker that Lemmy B is referencing. With Jenny stayed amongst the ruins of Summerhall, and it's Ray, that's who Rhaegar talked with. Maybe she wrote her own song. Uh, if Jenny survived, and she's also still at Summerhall, I don't know if she would stay there. I would think she would probably go back to Old Stone, but then again, we don't know much about her, so could very well be true that she stayed there. But it's a beautiful song. I wouldn't be surprised if George, in George's headcanon that he hasn't written yet, that perhaps Duncan, that perhaps the story of Duncan and Jenny was written by Rhaegar. Rhaegar's not alive. Rhaegar is next level dead. I think one of the reasons also that the story, that the Jenny song and the story of Duncan and Jenny resonates so much, but it's mostly with the common people and it's with uh, young lovers. And I think that's, it's supposed to remind you and what it resonates with. And that is the idea that choosing love, basically, rather than marrying for wealth and power. And also the idea that you are not restricted by where you were born that only the high lords get the things that they want in life because the story of duncan and jenny is jenny going from an unwanted outsider in the riverlands and becoming essentially on her way to becoming queen of the seven kingdoms getting herself a prince and being able to change your life in dramatic ways and it kind of shows that there's a connection between the peasants and the nobility that there's like a normalcy between them, that there is something they have in common, that there isn't really the caste system that the nobility likes to essentially enforce on them, that they are really all just people. It's just that some of them running around pretend they're lions and wolves and, and dragons when at the end of the day, they're all just people among them. It also is sort of a hope for the peasant class in general. Like, let's say if the, if the crown prince would marry a commoner, like, Maybe other changes can happen within the realm, especially when you're talking about Aegon V and how popular he was amongst the small folk. You know, feudalism at its core depends on the idea that nobility are better than the peasants, that they are impossible, that they are above them, guided by the gods sort of to the position they are. But the story of Duncan and Jenny goes against that. It's not true that feudalism is the worst. Another uh, patron subscription. Oh, thanks so much, Aegon the Six. Uh, ten dollars on Patreon. Thanks. That's really appreciate that. I've never had people su subscribe to Patreon live on stream. Thanks so much, Jaded Redhead and uh, Aegon the Sixth. And it, I, I guess I just want to reference this because it's one of my favorite movies. But the Knight's Tale, where the story of William is that you know he reached beyond his stars, that he went from peasant to nobility, that he was able to become more than he started as. That's a very powerful message for a lot of people, and while a lot of a lot of those who love Jenny's song and in, in universe do it because of the the love story and love conquering all message, it also has a very deep message for 
the common folk about they're not locked into their life, that things can get better, that uh, Jenny changed her stars, basically. The obvious parallels here, uh, Rhaegar and Lyanna. I talked about earlier about the theory by Cantus that Rhaegar uh, played Jenny's song in order to make so many fall in love with him. Oh, super chat from Donald Peoples, uh, $5, can't wait to catch you on the rewatch. Oh, can't stay, catch you on the rewatch, thanks for the great content. Uh, thanks so much, Donald, it's super generous, appreciate the donation. Again, we know that Rhaegar often went to Summerhall where the ghost of High Heart gorged on grief that she wants to hear the song on the harp by Tom 07, so George is drawing strong illusions between them. But it's also very possible that Rhaegar was inspired personally by their story and that his reasoning, part of his reasoning for running away with Lyanna Stark was in relation to this because we do hear from uh, Barristan Selmy and others that Rhaegar was fond of Elia, but it doesn't seem like it was a marriage of romance. It wasn't a, rare, a marriage of passion. And that's what you get from Duncan and Jenny. So you can imagine that he maybe saw parallels there between them, that he saw himself as Duncan the Small, that he saw Lyanna as, of, as Jenny of Oldstones. And that may have been a big part of the inspiration for him, especially if he's playing their song all their time, all the time. Rhaegar and also Duncan did not foresee the consequences of their actions, that the idea of love being more important than everything was not true for princes. And that's sort of also a criticism of feudalism as a system, that two people marrying each other because they love each other shouldn't be a controversial thing. It shouldn't be the kind of thing that inspires rebellions, that tens of thousands die because two people liked each other. That shouldn't really be the what happens. And it's only because they're princes that this kind of thing happens, which, yeah, feudalism sucks. And the reason it's, it matters is because of that. And obviously there's big parallels in the situations between the Laughing Storm's rebellion and Robert's rebellion. Um, Laughing Storm was his great-grandfather. So it's not direct one-to-one, -one, obviously, but they, they, kind of, they kind of rhyme with each other. So you have the story of a Baratheon lord who's very angry at the crown prince for being with the wrong woman and a rebellion follows up. Although there are very important differences between these two situations. For one thing, Robert had a lot of popular support. Many lords rallied to him, and that's part of the reason that his rebellion succeeded, whereas Lionel's did not. Nobody, there wasn't, like, although we know that Lionel's was quick and, and bloody and, you know, over fast, it doesn't seem like the Tyrells or or the Tullys, or the Aarons, or the Starks, anybody really joined him. It kind of seemed like it was him against the Iron Throne, which, if you, if you hate the lion, Robert's Rebellion is built on a lie, this sort of informs part of that, in that the difference between the situations is that Ares is what really took what is a personal grievance and made it a mass rebellion with his killing of the highborn uh, lords in Rickard Stark and also the sons, and calling for the heads of Robert and Ned did he call for John Aaron's head? No, he just called for them to execute them and deliver his heads to King's Landing. So George is making a, a point there about it's really, although the, the cause is the same, that the spark was lit by somebody, by Crown Prince taking somebody that he shouldn't have, the difference between the two is Aegon and Ares, that their reactions to these rebellions is very different and likely what caused the downfall of House Targaryen. It also adds to the idea, of course, that Rhaegar and Lyanna 
that it was not a kidnapping, that it was supposed to be like Duncan and Jenny, that there was real romance between them, that there was love, and you know, that they did not foresee these long lasting consequences, that these affairs of the heart were not really well thought through, or they didn't really imagine that it would cause such the problem that it did. Yeah, a good point. Um, if Ares had killed 12 random peasants instead of the High Lords, nobody would have given a shit. That's true. The problem was that Ares killed High Lords, that he threatened their place in the in the court. And, you know, that's sort of the, the tragedy when you think about Jenny's song, you know, besides Summerhall and how it ends, but it's that, the fe that feudalism and the idea of kings and queens and princes takes what is a normal thing within the real world, that people fall in love and want to live with each other and, and is something that when you're talking about people at these levels of power, it's more than that, that it's essentially, it builds what should be something simple into something deadly and something charged. It's a very sad song. Duncan and Jenny just loved each other and just wanted to be together. And instead, the laughing storm decided to, he couldn't, couldn't let it happen. Uh, so we got about 20 minutes left. So let's go ahead and answer a bunch of questions. I'm going to answer some of them I uh, took already, but, you know, throw them in the chat. Whatever, anything about this stuff, kind of whatever, throw them out there. I'll do my best to answer them in the next 20 minutes. Uh, Preston Cox on YouTube, he wanted to know why Jenny and the Ghosts of High Heart were so close after all the years she still grieves for Jenny. Uh, this has led some to theorize that perhaps the Ghost of High Heart was Jenny's mother. Um, that it she's so sad because it was her daughter that died maybe jenny or the ghost herself didn't want to make it worse for jenny's integration into court by by admitting that this was actually her mother it should make a lot of sense but it also seems that the ghost of high heart's connection to the old gods was very important for jenny that she thought she was a child of the forest that her prophecy and her dreams were true so it could be one or both her being the mother makes a lot of sense to me, that she's crying for her daughter. Uh, Renly's Peach asks, is anyone speculating about the Woods Witch Ghost of Hyrule was a Blackwood? Maybe she was, maybe she was, and that's why she and Bloodraven have albinism. Um, if so, what would it mean for the story? So that would be really interesting if, and a, a further connection for is Bloodraven behind anything, if the Ghost of Highheart was a member of the Blackwoods. Although, I would suspect not, because the Blackwoods have a history with the Old Gods and the Weirwoods that I don't think they would shun somebody like the Ghost of Highheart, who was an albino, and um, I guess she had dwarfism just because of that. I think they would interpret that as, as somebody with a gift that they would want to keep around, since they seemingly believe that in that kind of stuff quite a lot more. Interesting idea. The, um, the connections between her and Bloodraven can't be overlooked. That It's also said that sometimes the children of the forest, those who are green seers have the red eyes so um being an albino is in george's world apparently a way of making somebody as the guards the gods marking them basically um let's see here guilty undertaker as germer said if, if jenny and duncan had children no we have not heard anything about their children um as far as we know they went the rest of their lives without having any always time to retcon that though um we really don't know much about them as a couple we kind of go straight from the laughing storm rebellion to them dying at Summerhall, or at least duncan dying at Summerhall. we don't know what happened after that it would be nice though well i don't know if it'd be nice you presume if they had a child that the child probably would have died in Summerhall with the parents um although 
if you wanted to write a story in which Jenny of Oldstone survives Summer Hall and escapes, maybe she did it with her child and Duncan trying to save them in some way. That would be particularly heartbreaking. Uh, the Fearless Mermaid asks, do you think the story of Duncan and Jenny was a parallel for Gurm to relate to Rhaegar and Lyanna? Definitely. I think that's one of George's ways to inform us more about Rhaegar and Lyanna without directly doing it, where he uses them as an example to present the counterpoint to um, the story we initially heard about the kidnapping that no is probably closer to that they both left willingly. <laughs> Please no hidden Targ children. There's so many of them. There's, there's an unbelievable amount of secret Targaryens out there. Yeah, Aaron, there aren't any children listed in the Targaryen family tree in the back of World of Ice and Fire. Yeah. As far as we know, Duncan and Jenny had no children. Uh, Michelle Carter says, since there's little known about Jenny's background, is it possible she was a mud? If she was, <laughs> I was saying this at the beginning, it is so unlikely because the muds died or lost power thousands of years ago. They haven't been a noble house in quite a long time. If she actually is, it really is an unbelievable string of marriages and keeping track of it to be like all the way down from thousands of years ago to house mud today. Uh, Dornish Dame says, is the dragonfly among the reeds from the hedge knight just a line or is it significant to Duncan and Jenny's story? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't, I don't quite know. That would be cool if George inserted that line. Also, if, I don't know, maybe if, like I was talking about, maybe Jenny's related to Dunk, that the dragonfly is, uh, is about him. That would be kind of cool. Good thought. I like that one. That's a good brain teaser. Got oh, super chat here from uh, Aaron M. Uh, $20. Thank you so much, Aaron. Very, very generous. Awesome stream, awesome topic. Um, better character in A Knight's Tale, Watt or Chaucer? Ooh, that's a good one. Because it also comes down to the actors. Um, they, are, they both play their roles so well. That's Alan uh, Tudyk and... Ooh, I'm going to forget his name. Uh, he played Jarvis. And Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany and Alan Tudyk. They play such great roles. Also Mark Addy, who later played Robert Baratheon, was awesome in that movie. He played uh, Roland. Hmm... Who's better in that? I would say Watt. Watt. I think Watt is the better character. He's he sort of played as the comic relief, him and Roland. But his impact on the, on um, on Will and just how funny he is and how loyal he is and how willing he's getting into a fight for anything, I think endears um, Watt a little bit more than Chaucer. Although Chaucer's and Paul Bettany are both incredibly awesome. Oh, yeah, also, I have a soft spot for Alan Tudyk that he was in Firefly. A leaf on the wind, watch how he soars. That's always a sad one for me, too. Yeah, watch The Night's Tale. It's a really good story. I mean, it's kind of like A Song of Ice and Fire in that none of it is accurate, but it's still a good medieval story. Also very much like, um, I mean, it's supposed to be like the Lost Canterbury Tale kind of thing, which I imagine George would enjoy. Uh, so, question here from uh, on YouTube. It was Isamel uh, Lamego. Was Jenny a green seer or a skin changer? Do you think the ghost of High Heart knew that somehow it was going to happen and let everyone die for the greater good of prophecy? Uh, she also asks about, do you think Rhaegar wrote, uh, wrote Jenny's song? So answered that last one already. Was Jenny a green seer or a skin changer? We don't know if she was a green seer, but her relation to the old gods and the ghost of High Heart and prophecy and all that stuff may signify that perhaps she had like green seer dreams in the same way that uh, Jojen Reed does, especially if she's connected to like old ancient royalty or she's connected in some way to the Cranog Med. That would be super interesting. It'd also be it also inform maybe what part of what got Duncan interested in her. Maybe you can think of some kind of lines about 
Like I dreamed of you. Like we hear about Duncan. Actually, that that line from um from the Mystery Night where John the Fiddler says he dreamed of Dunk. Maybe something like that, where another Dunk was dreamed of by Jenny of Oldstones and knew he was coming, that kind of thing. Do I think the ghost of High Heart knew that the Summer Hall is gonna happen and let everyone die? I don't think she knew, and I don't think she let everyone die. The gorged on grief part seems to infer that it was a huge loss to her, that she didn't think it was gonna happen. That we also notably one thing that's very different about the ghost of High Heart compared to other people who have prophecies and dreams is that she does not interpret them anymore. That she just says what they are and lets the Beric Dondarian and the rest of the um, brother, the brother without banners, fill in the blanks about what it means. She just reports what she what she sees. So, I think it would be a very George thing if this is like the future of Melisandre that. Um, the ghost of High Heart learned her lesson about interpreting her dreams with Summer Hall in a dramatic way, that and that she stopped doing that, and now she only reports the dreams themselves. Maybe Melisandre, like I said, maybe Melisandre will get to that at some point. That she'll just accept and repeat the visions as she sees them, rather than going down the disaster of trying to understand what they mean. Uh, let's see here. Grab another question. Do you think was really uh, Lady Rosalie Valarion? Do you think Egg was really romantic at heart? Was he conflicted about the arranged marriage of his children? So his, we're told his marriage to Beth of Blackwood was one of romance and that all of his traveling with Dunk was an attempt to sort of see a different part of the world, see adventure and escape courtly life to sort of embrace his desires as a person to live and not just be a prince. So I would think that he had a lot of sympathy and probably why he agreed with his children, except for Rael, poor Rael, again, forced to marry Ormond Baratheon. But I think his decisions to let the other marriages stand, or the lack of them with Daron, is very much showing that he does understand what they're talking about. He does empathize and sympathize with his children when they say, why is it good for you to marry someone that you love and we can't? I think that's a very powerful line of logic that worked on Dunk. I mean, worked on Egg. But as we see, when he forced Ares and Rayella to marry, also forced Rael, that he will sometimes let his um, pragmatic side or his love of prophecy with, the, with, with Ares and Rayella overwhelm whatever sympathies he has, that he does come to understand more or believe more that there are things more important than the heart in conflict with itself, I guess. <laughs> oh, poor Egg. He starts off such a sweet boy and ends up blowing up himself and his family. Oh, San Rickson says she's working on finishing up my banner while listening and it's breaking her brain. Why is it breaking your brain, Mallory? Oh, by the yeah, San Rickson, she's working on, you guys have probably seen the icon. I've got a new icon that I'm using on Twitter and on um, Patreon. I haven't uh, moved it over to YouTube yet because Mallory's working on finishing uh, the banner across the top and also a new intro for videos that the um rather than the spooky trees it's going to be focused more around the magical hat she's working on them what i've seen so far looks amazing as usual mallory's an amazing artist and very much appreciate her doing this for me seeing you and fantasy you and listening to you yeah too many uh, joe magicians for you <laughs> yeah, good point uh ramona uh, uh I don't want to know George's feelings towards his sisters. Yeah, I do wonder about that. What what does George's sisters think about how often George writes about sibling incest? It has to have come up at some point, right? Like, why are you writing about this so much, George? Pick a different thing. 
I do appreciate everyone smashing the like button. We're up to 195 likes. Uh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, George has a couple sisters. He's not an only child. I think he has at least two. He might have three. I think he's the only son, though. I don't think he has any brothers. Uh, let's see here. From uh, Stormy4400, uh, they asked about, they asked a very uh, specific question that I'm going to have trouble answering, but I'll do my best. Um, they talked about the, let's see here, Eshna Persephone, more commonly known as the Persephone uh, Darner, is a real-world dragonfly whose natural habitat are the rivers of Mexico, American Southwest, including Arizona and New Mexico, where Gurm lives. Strongly suggests that he is familiar with this particular dragonfly. George also strongly associates uh, Sansa with Persephone in the books and on the show. The dragonfly motif heavily worked into a Julian clothing, which may indicate indicate which may indicate the story of Duncan and Jane will tie into her arc. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if he's aware of this particular dragonfly, but he's definitely aware of Persephone and he is using the dragonfly um, symbol quite a lot here with Duncan and Jenny. I don't know. He, he I don't think he would have that much influence over what Sansa wore in the show. Um, he was pre he's been pretty much out of it since about season three or four. Dan and Dave were pretty much doing everything at that point. So it'd be hard to link that choice in the show back to him. But that would be kind of a cool connection if he is aware of this particular dragonfly concerning he likes using it as a symbol over and over and over again. We've got about uh, five minutes left. So last call for anything you guys want me to talk about. Anything related to Duncan, Jenny, Rhaegar, Liana. Uh, Rosinante talks about big Romeo and Juliet vibes from Duncan the Small and Jenny's love story. A love story doomed the tragedy, not just for them, but those around them. Yeah, very much. Um, George is a big fan of Shakespeare. I would, it seems very likely that he's influenced by that particular story with Rhaegar and Lyanna and Duncan and Jenny, but also um, the story of the Trojan War, where you can very clearly see how um, Lyanna is positioned as, um, as Helen of Sparta, Rhaegar's Paris, and then you see... Menelaus is Robert Baratheon, the star-crossed lovers. A very old story that George updated in his own way. Especially with the release of Total War Troy, a lot of people are thinking more about the Trojan War. But seeing it that way, although the story of Duncan and Jenny is not like the Trojan War. That's in particular to Rhaegar and Lyanna, but both have elements of Romeo and Juliet. Um, Hussein asks, what was the deal with... Egg's brother that had dreams, can't remember his name, that is Daron the Dreamer, or Daron the Drunkard as he's known. Essentially, ever since he was, had a young age, he received tons of prophetic dreams and dreams about dragons, and they always came true. And it kind of drove to a lot of depression, because I guess a lot of the dreams that he had were about, that he interpreted about being himself or those around him dying, which does end up happening. And he ends up turning to the alcohol in order to stop the dreams because there's this sort of running idea in George's mind that people that get prophetic dreams, if they have a lot of alcohol, then they can essentially have dreamless sleep. Kind of like, um, I think Sweet Sleep does that too. But yeah, it seems that's, what's what, that's what was going on with uh, Daron. He ended up not getting the throne itself, although he was in line to it. Aemon tried to essentially be his personal maester and fix him, didn't end up working, and he died, um, according to the history that we get from catching a disease from a sex worker, with his daughter never being considered for the Iron Throne, seriously. Even though she probably should have. How many more Dunk novels should we expect from James Cook? Ah, uh, 
uh, well, they're very short. They're only uh, novellas. But if I think George has said he's not going to deliver anymore until the uh, until he delivers a dream of spring. So at least uh, I believe that's I remember from his latest posts about it. So if we get any more Dunkin' Egg, it will be quite a wise, quite a ways off. He's got at least one book to finish and then maybe another. Somewhere in there, Fire and Blood Volume 2 is coming out as well. Uh, Laura7Ann asks, was the Woods Witch sent by Bloodraven? Very real possibility that the visions she's been receiving over time in her dreams are coming from the Children of the Forest, or that Bloodraven is sending them since we know that is a thing he has the ability to do. Gurm said he wanted to put one out after the Wind's Winter. Okay, so maybe we'll get one more um, from Gurm before Dream of Spring. I can't remember if that's going to be... That might be the Village Hero. Some people have thought maybe the... Um, she Wolves of Winterfell will come next, where Dunk travels to the north and presumably hooks up with Old Nan to eventually create Hodor. Dunk has a lot of sex in these. <laughs> let's see, let's grab one more and then we'll get out of here. I know at 5 o'clock, uh, Radio Westeros is going live with Joe Buckley. They'll be talking about Catelyn um, in her undead form, Lady Stoneheart. Yeah, Dunk fucks. Let me grab the link for that. Oh, Chrissy of Holdstones is on top of it. Hey, wait. You're from Old Stones too? Chrissy, can you tell us about Jenny, please? Do you know her? Like, what's the relationship here? Are you guys secretly muds? Are you secretly from House Strong? Are you from Alice Rivers? Chrissy, please tell us about Jenny. You know you know her personally. I can't believe I, just, I went the whole stream looking at your name and didn't make that connection. But clearly, I'm talking about your family. Chrissy, give us the hot goss about Jenny. <laughs> One last question. Let's see here. So, uh, Guilty Undertaker, how many descendants does Dunk have? Well, if, if George is going for any kind of parallel with Lucamore the Lusty, who I think had 16. You can imagine that maybe Dunk had 16 children out there. Uh, how many descents does he have? There's no telling. Over that many generations, could be in the hundreds, if, if he even had a fraction of that. Definitely Brienne of Tarth, and that's several generations removed from when Dunk was alive. Probably Hodor. Um, there's been thoughts that maybe Small Paul is related to him, or maybe Gren because he's also called an aurochs and thick as a castle wall like Dunk is. I've thought in the past that maybe uh, the Cleganes are related to Dunk, maybe Rohane Weber or something like that. And also Robert Baratheon had his 16 bastard children. So if George is playing with that number again, with the Strongs and Lucamore and the kind of that motif of the old god strong house person that has a lot of bastards, I would guess that many. Oh uh, yeah, good point, Sasuke. It could also be that... Uh, Dunk and the Cleganes are related, but not directly, maybe from Lucamore or another member of House Strong. We know that obviously that Breakbones had his bastard children with Rhaenyra. Those are probably not the only children he had, and that's probably not the first time it happened. The Strongs seem very into having lots and lots of sex. Uh, unfortunately, Chrissy will not give us the hot goss, will not spill the tea about her relation, Jenny of Oldstones. That'll have to be another stream. So again, thank you guys uh, so much for showing up this afternoon, talking about one of my favorite subjects in Jenny's song and uh, Duncan, Prince of Bra Dragonflies and Jenny of Oldstones. If you have time, I can't believe I can get the link for this, but uh, Shakespeare Thrones, who's been on the channel a few times, has put out a really amazing rendition of Jenny of Oldstones with her playing the cello, I believe. And obviously, um, Shakes has a beautiful voice. I featured it uh, part of it on my video about Jenny of Oldstones during season eight. So yeah, if you want to, again, if you want to support me, super chats, um, through Patreon, go to patrons during this one, PayPal, all the things. But if you really want to help me out, just 
hit the like button, subscribe, and join me for the next one. That helps out the most. Go check out Radio Westeros at 5 o'clock, talking about uh, Lady Stoneheart. And I will see you guys hopefully on Tuesday for Microsoft Kings 2 stream, or this coming Saturday with another Quarren stream.